Father, we thank you for yet another week to gather together to worship you, to sing songs, oh, from the depths of our heart, crying out biblical truths together, side by side, proclaiming what you've revealed, worshiping you, our great God, our only God, the only God worthy of worship. And now as we open up the scriptures, Father, I pray, Lord, that you would bless us today and know that you will because your word is so powerful. Your word is so effective. Your word is so just penetrating to all of life. It, it hits us right where we're at. And so I pray, Father, that the word today would be an encouragement to us all. Lord, we pray for your help today. And we say this in Christ's name. Amen. Well, turn with me in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1 and verse 10. We'll, we'll be reading together through chapter 2 and verse 8. And really, this is just an extension of our last sermon on elders. And in particular, the last point of that sermon. Last time we saw that Paul instructed Titus to appoint elders on the island of Crete. And then he proceeded to tell Titus exactly what these elders should be like in terms of their character. And then he told Titus what these elders should be doing in terms of their job description. And the two things that elders are to be doing according to chapter 1 and verse 9 that we looked at in our last point last week, I mean, I'm sorry, our last sermon last month, was that first elders are to be teaching sound doctrine. And then second, that they are to be rebuking those who contradict that said sound doctrine. So now we turn to our text this morning in a continued discussion about those who contradict sound doctrine. And then we're going to contrast that with an example of healthy doctrine that Titus and the elders, of course, are to teach instead. And we will see that even right now in our scripture reading as we read it together from our text. So would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? And we are going to see right here in this passage, the elders are to protect gospel-centered churches. This is God's word. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. They must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. This testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith, not devoting themselves to Jewish Myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. To the pure, all things are pure, but 
to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Chapter 2. But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respect to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. You may be seated. Our beliefs, thinking, or, in other words, our doctrine directly influences and leads to the way that we live our lives. Let me prove it to you. We all believe here this morning that having a home to lay our heads and food to nourish our bodies is an important aspect of life. Well, how do I know that? We all have jobs, and we work hard to earn that paycheck, to cover the mortgage or rent, and to be able to purchase the groceries. You see, you believe that it would be a very bad thing for you and your family to slowly starve for lack of food, or to have to use a rock as a pillow on the streets. That belief motivates your ambition and hard work to provide and sustain shelter and food. Your doctrine here, as it relates to this, leads to your living and actions to consider it another way. Imagine we hung out for the day and put aside the fact that I'm one of your pastors, and we just went about your day almost as if I wasn't there, right? So I saw how you actually lived your life. Let me tell you, I think I'd be able to tell you exactly what you believe based on how you lived your life, for good or for evil. So if a man says that he believes that Jesus is the only way to salvation and that anyone who doesn't have faith in Jesus and his work on the cross and resurrection will actually go to hell forever, but then that same guy fails to share the gospel with his family members and his loved ones, his friends, it would kind of call into question his 
beliefs and the sincerity of them, right? You'd wonder, does he really believe that? Or the woman who says that her faith is everything to her, her Christian life, oh, it is so important. It is the, 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 the bedrock, the foundation. <laughs> However, at the same time, she regularly is skipping out on church throughout the year for various and unjustifiable reasons. You might rightly wonder what she actually believes. You see, our beliefs and our lifestyles are more intertwined and connected and mixed up than many of you might think up front. This is why it is so necessary for elders to teach what is good, sound, and healthy. Because teaching influences the church as a whole as it influences individual believers in the church who hear it. However, this truth, it cuts both ways. It can go towards good, but sadly, it can also go towards evil as well. For if false or unhealthy teaching is influencing the church, then the result will inevitably be sinful and evil living for many who hear it. Oh, this is a weighty responsibility for those of us who are elders. And let me tell you, this is true because this is just how the world works. You've heard the old saying, oh, bad company corrupts good morals. Well, that's true. And it can be applied to teaching as well. Bad teaching corrupts and leads to bad and sinful living. Insert here the job description of elders to teach the good and to expose the evil to protect the church. And as William Hendrickson says, as it relates to local churches, there is no such thing as freedom of misleading speech. So elders must shut that down. So this leads us to the consideration of our text this morning. And as you see here in your outline, we are going to be looking at two things elders do as it relates to all this. And two things that they do is really just to boil it down to protect from the evil influence of false teachers, and then just on the flip side to put forward good, healthy teaching for the church. So let's look at our first point this morning together. And number one, elders expose false doctrine that leads to sinful living. They do this by exposing, in part, false teachers. Well, who are these false teachers? Look with me in your Bibles to Titus 1 and verse 10. For there are many who are insubordinate, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision party. We see here, right off the bat, that these false teachers, they do not submit to that apostolic authority we looked at last time. They are unsubmissive. They are insubordinate to Paul's gospel. These false teachers are not gospel-centered. Rather, they simply talk a big game by their words and 
They're actually able to deceive others by their twisted teaching. Paul highlights here specifically the circumcision party, which Titus would have been very, very familiar with. As one commentator helpfully points out, as it relates to Titus, he says, although the personal data are limited, Titus's role as Paul's co-worker in the missionary endeavors of the early church is impressive. Even though Titus is not mentioned by name in Acts, all the evidence strongly indicates that Paul presented Titus to the Jerusalem council in Acts 15 as living proof that the Jewish rite of circumcision was not necessary for salvation. We looked at Acts 15 as Michael helpfully read that to us today. And then we see also in Galatians chapter 2, this commentator points out this as well, in Galatians chapter 2 and verse 3, we see, Paul says, but even Titus, talking about Titus, the author of our book, in Galatians, he says, but even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus was a Gentile. He was not himself circumcised. And he was involved in ministry with the Apostle Paul and converted and such as we looked at last time. Not even he was forced to be circumcised is what Paul says to this circumcision party in Galatians. And then we see how this relates even later in the book of Galatians in the same chapter, chapter 2 and verse, verses 11 through 12. Paul recounts that time he had to confront the apostle Peter, even, as we read in, in verse 11 of Galatians 2. But when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. Right here in verse 10, we see especially those of the circumcision party in Paul's letter to Titus. So we see these false teachers messing up people in the church of, uh, in the, in the, we see in the, uh, the book of Galatians, messing up Peter, causing him problems, and, and even leading him to his own sin. And then we even see here, these false teachers are causing problems on the island of Crete, as well. They're just a bunch of troublemakers, aren't they? For we see in verse now, in verse 11, we read, they must be silenced since they are upsetting whole families by teaching for shameful gain what they ought not to teach. The elders must put an end to these teachers, and not by force, since that's just not how it works in the new covenant, but through their leadership and teaching as they expose, expose the false teachers and protect the local churches in Crete. This is so very important and practical because this false teaching was actually hurting entire families and potentially even taking Money from them, as we see here, shameful gain. This particular false teaching of the circumcision party is scattered throughout the New Testament. There's a lot of data about 
the circumcision party as it relates to this. And we even see here in our text again, not only in verse 10, but in verse 14, we read, not devoting themselves to Jewish myths and the commands of people who turn away from the truth. We can't further delve into the background of these false teachers, but the point is clear, that these false teachers do not know or teach the gospel because of their false thinking and teaching, and they were hurting churches. And this is devastating, even entire families in their wicked ploys. But let's see here as we transition to another angle, the corruption of Crete wasn't limited to only the false teachers here, not to them alone, but also to the corrupting influences of the Cretan society and worldview as well. Look with me at verse 12. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy cluttons. This is actually really funny. Let me just prepare you for that, because Paul here quotes a pagan, non-Christian prophet. He was actually a false prophet, not even sent by God. He quotes him. He quotes him in a positive light, not in what he's saying as if it's good, but that even this false prophet, this pagan prophet, even he got it right about you Cretans. He says, right on to the prophet. He's like urging him on. Preach. Preach, man. You got it. You are right on here. But he's not commending the action and the practice. No, this is actually a slap in the face by the Apostle Paul that even their false prophet got it right in pointing out the evil of their culture. For Paul goes on now in verse 13 to say, this testimony is true. Therefore, rebuke them sharply that they may be sound in the faith. Paul here tells Titus that you're going to have to address these people in the churches of Crete based on their sinful backgrounds. This is a mess. It's a, a mess of an island. So much sin. So much wickedness. You're going to have to speak against their propensity towards evil. Even the Christians in Crete lived amongst, and, and, and many of them were from this evil and wicked island. And much of them would have had poor lifestyles influenced even by this culture. So they must be called to the carpet here. They must be challenged to repent and to live a different way. Not in the way of the circumcision party. And also not in the way either of this heathen Cretan culture. Both are bad. Both need to be exposed by Titus and by the elders. For we see here in verses 15 and 16, to the pure all things are pure, but to the defiled and unbelieving nothing is pure, both, but both their minds and their consciences are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. Paul here calls a spade a spade. And he's not afraid, see this, he's not shy in exposing these false 
professions of faith of these false teachers and would also to apply to anyone who has a profession of faith who are just merely going along with the ride and believing the false gospel of the circumcision party or are so corrupted and overcome by the culture that they are not even believers to begin with. Paul says these corrupt individuals in the church may talk a big game. They may even say that they believe. However, when it really comes down to it, based on their living, or as we see here, their works, as it says, the way that they live, their lifestyles, their teaching, how they act even, they are only showing that they are unbelievers in reality. For he says that they are detestable, disobedient, unfit for any good work. So what are elders supposed to do in light of all this? Well, most basically, number one, elders must protect against the false teachers. Now, that's the point. That is the main point. But the number two, elders, you see, they cannot just sit by quietly while destructive teaching and cultural influence takes over the church. They can't do that. Not an option for them. They can't just bow out of that one. It's unbecoming of an elder. They've got to face it. And then number three, elders, you know, see, they can't even be afraid to call into question at times the legitimacy of a profession of faith of somebody based on their evil teaching or even based on their evil living. We see that here. The Apostle Paul calls Titus to do it, right? And by implication, elders also must be doing this. So now that we've even looked here at our first point and considered Crete and the false teachers and such and this corrupting worldview, let's quickly consider together here this morning uh, how this might relate to us in our day, in our situation, for the false teachers today, for the false worldview and thinking today. How does this relate? Look at five things quickly. Number one, we need to avoid and be careful and watch out for moralism. Moralism. We must fight against any temptation to earn our way to God's approval as it relates to salvation. All works-based salvation inventions, and I call them inventions because there's no such thing of somebody working on their own in and of themselves towards any kind of approval to God. They're all inventions, every one of them. All of those are to be exposed and avoided like a plague. We need to look out for unbiblical rules and regulations people tend to gravitate towards. We even see that here in our text, right? None, none of them. Not, none of them. We can't, we've got to avoid them all, right? I'm not talking about any rules or expectations or considerations of the Christian life. I'm talking about the unbiblical ones, the ones that are added on. It's like, what? Okay, we're supposed to do that? Wait, where is that in the Bible? I'm looking in the Bible for where you're finding this, and I'm not seeing it. We ought to avoid that kind of thing. And we got to avoid the kind of, uh, you know, pride and judgmentalism towards petty things in particular. There's a lot of that going on in our world today as it relates even to churches. Number two, we need to avoid licentiousness. Where moralism is that uh, tendency to think that you could some way approve or earn your way to God's 
approval and salvation. Licentiousness is the other side of the coin. It says, doesn't matter how I live. I can live like the devil because I've got the grace of God. That's wrong as well. We need to watch out in our own hearts the tendency to sway into a kind of laxity in the Christian life where we just excuse our sin and other sins and claim grace, grace, while we pursue wickedness. We need to watch out for the secret sins that creep up into our lives and that we, are, we become comfortable with over time because we're failing to fight against it and repent of it. And we need to watch out for the kind of pride and boasting in our freedom at the expense of others. And the kind of boasting in our freedom at the expense of our own Christian life. We need to avoid that kind of thing. Number three, we need to watch out for the prosperity teachers and preachers. This text mentions shameful gain that the false teachers were taking from entire families. Does this not draw our minds to false and deceiving teaching of the prosperity teachers that we see maybe even on television or even closer to home? I know of some churches even in this valley that have that specific tendency. How do I know that? They pop up on my Facebook feed and I watch a little one, two-minute clip. And then that's how I know that. We need to watch out for this kind of thing. If you come across a television program or a church or a preacher asking you to send them money, you already know that you have a false teacher right off the bat. Nowhere do we see the kind of financial manipulation and appeals in Scripture towards giving money in the Bible like we see from these false teachers today. Christians certainly give generously to the work of the gospel and the support of the mission and the support of local churches and the support of great ministries out there. But never for snake oil or slivers of the cross or parts of Jesus' robe or anything else for that matter. Or the pastor's private jet. It reminds me of one time while I was in seminary, I came across a program like this one night where this guy, this preacher, was appealing to people if they happened to be a part of the chosen this, this group of people that you're listening to me, a part of the chosen, you are to give the, uh, this thousand dollar gift if you're part of the chosen. Now, you may not be a part of the chosen. You may be a part of something else like the lesser chosen, so you can give whatever you want. But you may be a part of the chosen who's going to give a thousand dollars. And then you see these testimonies of people saying, oh, the UPS truck came knocking on the door and they gave me a letter. I opened the box and oh, after I gave to this great mission, this great ministry, this man of God, guess what happened? My mortgage was completely forgiven. Or at least a few months of it was completely forgiven. It was so deceptive and evil and wicked and terrible that I decided to call that number on the screen. The lady answered. Poor lady. And I said, I just wanted to let you know that you and your ministry, this preacher, and you just... Someone from your ministry, I, I, I have a feeling that you have been called and chosen to give me actually this thousand dollars. Oh my goodness, this is a blessing to you and your ministry will be blessed. I will give you my mailing address so you could send it to me. Surely I could use it. She responded, sir, 
Um, I'm, I'm going to uh, transfer you to the prayer department. Well, let me tell you, I wasn't the one who needed prayer that day. This lady and that ministry, they needed the prayer as it relates to this false and wicked teaching. We've got to avoid that as well. Number four, we need to avoid Protestant liberalism. Many so-called Christian churches, they fall into this camp. Those are the ones who deny the Orthodox creeds through history every time they open up their mouths on any given Sunday service. They might not say that in any of their documents, but then everything that they say, they're just denying good, sound doctrine. Everything that they say. There's a lot of bad teaching out there in churches who deny the foundational tenets of the faith and the authority and the truthfulness and the trustworthiness of the Bible and the divinity and the humanity of Jesus or the clear and explicit teaching and implications and deductions clearly of the doctrine of the Trinity, for instance. And these churches and teachers must be avoided and exposed, which is why I'm doing it right now. Number five, we need to avoid the cultural ethos or worldview of our day. In other words, we need to avoid our Crete. We must oppose abortion, for instance, as the murder of innocent babies, as opposed to the wicked and just no-brainer acceptance of it in our culture, as if it's just some outpatient procedure. Just going to get a procedure. No, it's a murder. We need to oppose that. We can't get swept up into the crete of our day. Or even the rampant sexual immorality that hits us from all angles in our culture and worldview. Just look at what's going on. Rampant in all areas, in all directions. Don't get swept into the crete of our day. The moralism that we are all tempted towards, I'm sorry, the materialism, already dealt with moralism, the materialism that we are all tempted towards, kind of like that carrot in front of us, the American dream, bigger, better, more, advance, advance, all about me, all about my kingdom. We need to avoid the Crete of our day. The Apostle Paul says that the Cretans, as he agrees with this false prophet, that they're lazy uh, liars, uh, lazy gluttons, evil beasts. What do you suppose the Apostle Paul and even maybe Jesus himself would think of our culture that we find ourselves in? What would they say? Americans are sex-obsessed and confused, objectifying, money-hungry, blood-thirsty, murderers of infants, lovers of evil. So where do we go from here? <laughs> now that we've put forward the point that elders are to expose false teachers and false doctrine and worldview, what do we do now? Do we just go home? Or we just go to lunch now? Just kind of leave now that we've done that? Of course not. We cannot do that here because merely exposing evil isn't going to do anyone much good because then they won't have anywhere else to go. They need the truth. So this leads us to our second and final point. Elders teach true doctrine that leads to godly living. Chapter 2 and verse 1. But as for you, teach what accords with sound 
doctrine. Now, in contrast, Paul is now instructing Titus not to teach like those of the circumcision party. And also, not to teach the kind of falsehood that would approve of the Cretan evil lifestyle. Rather, he says that Titus is to teach what accords with sound doctrine. This is a major theme in this letter, as we saw the last sermon. And Paul is urging Titus towards good doctrine that makes a difference. Good doctrine that actually makes a difference in our daily living. We saw in our last sermon in Titus chapter 1 and verse 1b, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness. See the theme throughout the book. And then we see here in Titus Titus chapter 1 and verse 16a, they profess to know God, but they deny him by their works. And Titus chapter 2 and 1a that we see here also, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. And then in Titus 2 and verse 3b that we'll see next week, they are to teach what is good as it relates to the ladies. And then Titus 2 and verse 10b, not pilfering, but showing all good faith so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. This is a clear and major theme that the beliefs and the doctrine and the foundation ought to lead to the good. And if it doesn't, then we call into question not the beliefs and the foundation and the doctrine. We call into question to the legitimacy of the profession of faith. If you say that you believe these good things, but then you live contrary to it, you do not believe these good things. Do you see that? I ask you. Do you separate them in your minds and in your life? Are you adept at listening to preaching and then going about your life as if you never even heard what the preacher revealed? Denying by your living the sound doctrine put forth by your pastors. If so, I challenge you to repent of this tendency and actually listen up and put to practice the sound doctrine that you hear week in and week out. That's part of the reason why we've added this response time at the end of our service. The elders realize that we don't want you to just be merely hearers of the word, but doers of the word. We want you to examine and think about how your life might be different how you might think differently, how you might live differently as it relates to the God-inspired and God-breathed scriptural revelation that you hear preached. I'm afraid that for some of you, I'm afraid that you are more influenced by the worldview of our culture than anything that is ever said here at MVC. Not all of you, of course. I would not suggest that, since I personally witnessed the great evidence of God's grace in many, very, very many, many of your lives. But I would challenge all of you here today, every one of us, to evaluate ourselves to determine how well we are living out what we profess, what we say that we believe. Paul goes on here to get very practical. Now he advises Titus how he should address various groups of people in the church. This is actually going to continue for a few sermons forward, this this line of thinking. Look with me at verse 
2. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in the faith, in love, and in steadfastness. So he now addresses the older men amongst us. And we're not going to dwell here long since our last sermon on elders brought out a lot of these character qualities already, and much of them are pretty straightforward. But let me just say this. Older men are to be godly and mature in faithfulness as we see here today. Men, you ought to be godly, mature models in faithfulness. And then Paul goes on in this practical section here in verses 3 through 5, and we're really going to skip over these verses now because if you look at your scheduled outline of the sermons this summer, you'll see that now there's a little change. We're going to be dealing exclusively with verses 3 through 5 next week in our sermon related to the ladies. And I'm very excited about that. But as you can see here even right now, Paul is urging Titus to teach healthy and godly living, just like he is to the older men, but now in a different kind of way towards the women. He's saying the same thing, but it's a little different because godly living is going to look a little different in that context. And we'll look at that next week. He then goes on to address the younger men to self-control. Look with me at verse 6. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. That's the only thing he says right now to the younger men. The younger men are dealt with other places, and there's much that we addressed even in our last sermon as it relates to this, but he just focuses in on this self-control towards younger men and how practical that is. Because notice, self-control is not actually only attributed to young men, but it's also attributed to elders, as we saw last time, Right? And it's not only attributed to younger men and elders, but it's also attributed to older men, as we just saw just now, and also to older women and to younger women. So this is an important attribute and characteristic of the Christian life, self-control, because self-control is so important because we are not to be pulled by mere impulse and decisions of the whims and our appetites. No, that's actually the non-Christian way of life. No. But we are to have a self-conscious effort to glorify God and turn away from these evil desires. All of us. Everyone. Everyone who's a Christian. This is an important one. Then lastly, we see here in verses 7 through 8, Paul ends up exhorting Titus right back where we started even in our last sermon on elder qualifications, expanding upon these things. Look with me at verses 7 and 8. Show yourselves in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity, dignity, verse 8, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And since we spent so much time looking at elder qualifications last time, we're not going to dwell here very long, but we're going to point out specifically the continued emphasis of elders being models to the congregation. These verses just serve to further highlight how important that model really is, for they must demonstrate in everything they say, and I mean everything they say, in personal and in public, and not in just what they say, in how they 
say it. In all areas, they must be blameless and upright. How they're addressing everybody, their opponents, their church members, the people they meet at the street or the store, anywhere. They must conduct themselves in a kind of way that is above reproach in all areas. So not even their opponents will have anything to say against them. Not even their opponents, not even them could come against them because of their life. So what, what does this all mean for elders? Well, first, we must realize that elders must protect the flock, of course, not only against false teaching, but though that's important, they also must put forward a healthy teaching in contrast. Not enough just to be the watchdogs pointing out everything that's wrong with all the false teachers. It's not enough just to be you know, posting things about how bad everybody else in our culture and our, the evil teachers. And it's not enough to do that. That's not going to help anybody if that's all that's being done. And then second, elders can't simply just teach theological doctrine alone, theology, beliefs, doctrine, and just remain silent about morals in the Christian life. Our biblical ethics is our doctrine as well. Elders must not, number three, be afraid to teach and apply moral doctrinal truths to various situations, even the nitty-gritty specific life situations of individual lives and the details of their lives. For Paul wasn't afraid to exhort Titus and the elders to do so, so these elders in our day shouldn't be afraid to do so. And let me tell you, you should be encouraging your elders to do so because it's for your good. For the next last year, elders, of course, like we've seen time and time again through the last two sermons, the last one and then this one, we need to put forward a positive example of the way that we live our lives, striving towards a consistency in the way that we believe and what we believe and then how we live. So, now that we've seen how elders protect gospel-centered churches by exposing evil teaching and exposing evil worldviews, we now look again inward towards our own life. Where are we when it comes to the consistency of doctrine and morals or even lack thereof? Where are we today? Ask yourself, where are you this morning? Some people chide Christians for being hypocrites, for saying one thing and then doing the complete opposite. That ought not to be the case. Not that we can be perfect, of course. We already established the impossibility of that. But there ought to be a kind of genuine humility and honesty in the Christian life and in the Christian community of our local churches that put forward not perfect people, but humble and honestly, truly, genuinely Christian people. I think that's what we need. We see that here in our text. We must not be fakes hiding secret sin, but genuine Christians repenting of the sin that we inevitably will be getting entangled in. Not two-faced, loving evil in private, but professing good in the church. 
but repenting of sin and seeking help from each other and actually helping each other, seeking help even and counsel from your elders or other mature believers in the church, seeking help in the difficulties of sin and the Christian life, not fakes, not pretends, not not pretenders, not fakers, seeking to live consistently as much as we can our Christian lives so that what we believe can come into harmony with how we live, actually. So believer, I encourage you to keep on repenting of your sin, seeking to align yourself with your doctrine and beliefs from the Bible so that it might affect your daily living for everything that is true, good, and healthy. Now, this is a lifelong thing. So this is a lifelong encouragement to you, believer. And if you are here, though, and you're an unbeliever, maybe even the kind of unbeliever who currently has a profession of faith where everyone else thinks you are a Christian, kind of like these people in the island of Crete, turn away from the bad teaching and bad influence of the false teachers and worldview and culture of our day and turn towards the only healthy and life-giving message of the Bible and the good news of the gospel that saves repentant sinners. Stop playing the religious games by simply just showing up. Repent of your sins and believe the gospel and the only good and healthy doctrine that comes from the scriptures and as we saw here this morning by the apostle Paul. 